Thank you, Alan, for reading our scripture for us this morning. Um, it is my joy to get to stand before you today and preach on these verses. Um, but first of all, happy Fourth of July weekend. I hope everybody's having a good weekend so far. Um, there's a, a lot of joy surrounding this this date in my family. There's five birthdays packed in around uh, this holiday, um, and it's always joy. But it's also for me this time of year. It's also a reminder, like how fast life is going. All right, so we're halfway this year is almost done. We're halfway done with the summer. Uh, so uh, if you know how to slow down time, uh, please let me know. I have been desperately trying to figure that out as our kids age and as life continues to pass by. Uh, but let me pray for us before we, we jump into this text. Holy God, you stand outside of time. You are eternal. No beginning or end. Lord, I pray that you would reveal your beauty to us this morning of your sovereignty and your goodness. Lord, I ask that you would speak through me as Paul prayed. Give me a boldness to proclaim the gospel as I ought. Or may this be done for your glory and for our joy. Amen. So our denominational uh, statement of faith says that we believe God has spoken in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we believe that it's the responsibility of our church to teach and preach the full counsel of God. So therefore, we, we typically uh, study an entire book of the Bible or we will have a specific series that hones in on a specific attribute or, or something we see constant through the, the arc of biblical, uh, the biblical storyline. Uh, like we just finished up a series on prevailing prayer. But in the, the month of Ju- July, we're going we're to do something a little different. Um, we're we're going to have standalone sermons, and so I'm leading off. Uh, it's not tied to a specific book or a theme, uh, per se, uh, but we believe these messages speak to what the Lord is doing in the hearts of our congregation and in this cultural moment. Maybe this will become uh, a, a greatest hits album. I don't know. I don't know. We'll have to see about that. But why did I pick Ephesians chapter 6, 10 to 20? Am I drawn to preaching topics that we don't like talking about? Like last month, I got to preach on Joel about God's final judgment on his enemies. This passage requires teaching about the devil. So I guess my next sermon will be about giving. Uh, 2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 7. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So be looking out for that next sermon coming. I'm just prepping you. But why, why did I choose spiritual warfare? Well, I think it's a topic that we, we need to consider. Because much is at stake, and this cosmic battle is occurring all around us every day. And typically we swing back and forth between two broad, unhelpful camps in regards to spiritual warfare. 
The first camp is indifference. In camp indifference, indifference, there is a tendency to make Satan weaker than he is. The rival camp is camp fear. Camp fear's tendency is to make Satan stronger than he is. So my youngest two just spent last week in their first camp experience. So I had to run with this theme. So you'll, you'll see this come out a little bit more about these camps. And I believe the majority of our body in this room would find themselves comfortably in camp indifference. And we know intellectually that Satan and his demons are powerful, but we live day to day like they are not. My hope for you this morning, as this is your camp, is that you would be pulled out of indifference, but not pulled over fear. My hope for you to find yourself in camp fear is that you would believe and live like your Lord and Savior is more powerful the evil one. Most certainly, we have a true and dangerous enemy, but he is, defeat, he is a defeated enemy because of the work of Jesus Christ through his death and his resurrection. So before I, I jump into the text this morning, take a moment to ask yourself, which camp do you live day to day in? Camp indifference, living like Satan is weaker than he is, or camp fear, living like Satan is stronger than he is. At the moment of salvation, many things are happening to an individual. God is giving a person faith to believe on the work of Jesus. He's transforming them from being dead in their trespasses to living life in Christ. He's replacing their hearts of of stone with a heart of flesh. He's transferring them from, from darkness to light. And he's moving them from being an enemy of God to an enemy of Satan. Being in the midst of spiritual warfare is is not a reality reserved to those particularly devoted to God. We don't get to choose if we we will be in this fight or not. The choice is, is being between being prepared for the fight or unprepared in the fight. A few months ago, Brian Gore Gore shared a quote from C.S. Lewis that says, There's no neutral ground in this universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and then counterclaimed by Satan. The battle is not just in moments or seasons. Instead, it will continue to rage until the return of our victorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Graciously, God has provided detailed instructions on how we are to engage this enemy in this cosmic warfare. The first word of our, our passage this morning is final. And there is a lot of ground covered in the book of Ephesians before we get to this final word from Paul. If you haven't spent time studying this particular book of the Bible, I highly recommend it. The opening details of this, this book line out the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in salvation. 
there's this beautiful repetition of what it means to be in Christ. Referring to our union with Jesus Christ through saving faith in His work on your behalf. In Christ, you are blessed. In Christ, you are chosen. In Christ, you are predestined. You are adopted. You are accepted. In Christ, you are redeemed. You are forgiven. In Christ, you are enlightened. In Christ, you have been given an inheritance. In Christ, you are sealed. And in Christ, you are assured. Amen? Amen. Amen. The book of Ephesians moves from our position in Christ to the purpose and plan of His church, to to being faithful in His church, and then finally, God's provision for spiritual battles. To to Paul's first order is to be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. And sadly, this, this first step is often overlooked. Believers frequently move past these instructions in their haste to put on the spirit, the armor of God. And I can see it in you already, some of you in this room. You said, hey, I've heard the passage read. Like, Give me a sword, point me in the right direction, and let's start fighting. But this morning, I want to, first of all, tell you lovingly, slow your roll. Seriously, when we, when we move forward in our own strength and might, it will fail in the heat of the battle. The ability to be strong in the Lord and strengthen His might starts with recognizing your weakness. But our proud hearts, they sow strength from weakness. In the book, The Whole Armor of God, how Christ's victory strengthens us for spiritual battles, written by Ian Dugan. He states, The Spirit has no interest in turning us into independent creatures which can stand on our own strength. Rather, He wants, to, he wants us to see clearly the reality that we have no power within ourselves to take up the armor of God and stand. Unless God himself empowers us to do that. With all notions of being able to fight on our own strength removed, the believer is ready to engage the enemy with real power and strength. Namely, the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father. So here's the bottom line. Self-discipline and more resolve will not be enough. This is a supernatural battle that requires supernatural strength. In your weakness, submit to trusting in the Lord's strength, not your own. So contrary to this world, weakness is the way. So after... After Paul proclaims the the true source of our strength for spiritual warfare, he calls our attention to the true enemy, which is the devil and his evil forces. Verse 11 says, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
Paul identifies the devil as the, the primary enemy. And we learn in the next verse that he is the leader of the opposing forces of darkness. But Paul is calling us to, to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the devil's schemes. Which are his clever and crafty and cunning and deceptive methods that he uses to destroy your joy as he attempts to steal God's glory. So it's, it's vital that we develop an understanding of the devil from Scripture and not from the characters the world puts forth. The devil, or Satan, is the fallen angelic enemy of God. And I get it. That, that many of us here in this room start thinking, alright, this is where the sermon starts to get weird. Like, I invited a friend today. Uh, and then others of us here just, just truthfully say, like, like, this is a reality I don't even want to consider. I just want to live like this is, this is not a reality. Which that thought itself is one of his tactics. Because the devil knows that you knowing the truth about him will enable you to fight against him and his forces of evil. So, let's take a moment to hear from Jesus. And he gives us one of the clearest descriptions of who Satan is and what he's doing. It's just two verses found in John chapter 8. It's John chapter 8, verses 34 through 40. Well, yes, I have a typo on here. So I hope it's 34 through 35. But it's in John chapter 8, trust me. So here, Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders who have rejected him. And this is what Jesus says. He says, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan is intentionally evil. And Jesus traces the devil's lies all the way back to Genesis 3. Where the serpent's lies lead to death for the human race. So as you look across the full counsel of God's word, you come to Ezekiel chapter 28 verses 14 through 18. And it gives a key description of Satan. In which we learn that he is an angelic being created by God. And God created him full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. And he was to be the chief angel over all angels. However, Satan became proud and he desired to take the place of God. And in his rebellion against God, he persuaded a third of his fellow angels to join him in his intent to overthrow God. The outcome of this, this cosmic battle is recorded in the last book, in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verses 8 through 9. The outcome of this cosmic battle records here, it says, But he, Satan, was defeated, and there was no longer any place for him in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, 
the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Satan is a defeated enemy, but he is a dangerous enemy. Satan and his fallen angels are committed to continuing the fight against God and his church. They desire to steal God's glory by preventing you from worshiping God alone. Paul highlights Satan's fellow angels in verse 12 in our text. He says, for, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So all these terms refer to the powerful spiritual beings that make up the kingdom of darkness. And, and as I look across the, the headlines of the church, I see much wrestling against flesh and blood. And to be honest, I see so little wrestling against the powers of this present darkness. So little wrestling against the spiritual forces of evil. Church, who is the real enemy? It's not flesh and blood. It's not even your own flesh and blood. The real enemy is the devil and his fellow fallen angels. So, in this reality, where's your prayers reflected mostly these days? Is it against flesh and blood? Or is it truly against the true enemy? Knowing the, knowing the real enemy, as we're saying, it is important. But, but knowing his tactics is vital. And, and much can be learned by seeing the schemes he used against Adam and Eve. In, in his craftiness, in Genesis, he says, comes to Eve and says, does, does God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? And then after Eve's response, he says, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So here's another quote from Ian Dugan's book on spiritual warfare. Underneath these, these questions that we see from Satan are two of his chief lies that he uses and that he wants us to believe. The first one is that God doesn't really love us. And the second one is sin doesn't really matter. The opening chapters of, of Genesis reveal God intended his good creation to be stewarded by mankind in a close relationship with their maker. God planted a garden of Eden with, with every tree that is pleasant to the sight of fruit, to, pleasant to the sight and good for food, to be a blessing to mankind. And this blessing includes the freedom to eat of every tree in the garden except just one that God forbids. Satan deceived Eve by, by causing her to doubt God's goodness in this blessing. He caused her to believe that, that God's prohibition was, was, out, was not out of love, 
but from a desire to withhold something from her that would give her joy. Satan adds to this deception by lying about the consequences of this rebellious act. So understanding this strategy presented in in Genesis 3 is is monumental because it is the same strategy, strategy he uses over and over and over again. God doesn't really love you. And what sin, what you're doing, that sin, doesn't look bad. But I don't want to, to make this battle seem too simplistic. As, a, as an angelic creation, the devil is intelligent, he's powerful, he's well organized, and he has studied the weakness of mankind for thousands of years. As the deceiver of the world, Satan's strategy is holistic as he brings his influence upon individuals and culture at large. As a slanderer and a false accuser, he is always looking to speak deceitfully about God or God's son or daughter. As an angel of light, he attacks his attacks are disguised and, not, and they're not easily recognized as evil. He will attack your weakness. I think we all kind of did that. But he's so crafty that he will use your strength against you. But overall, the substance of these attacks are well-crafted lies that ultimately sow doubt about, his, about God's character and God's goodness. He is the father of lies, and he is quite gifted. He is so gifted that he persuaded a third of the angels to follow him instead of serve God. So as we, we sit under the weight of Satan's strengths, it's easy to turn to despair. And that itself, in itself is part of his strategy. Satan spreads his lies and influence to deceive the world into believing that he is stronger and more powerful than God. And this morning, let me just just be clear. Let me remind you of the glorious truth that destroys this life. Satan himself is under the control and authority of God. Satan wants to be God, but he's not God. Therefore, he is not all-knowing. He is not all-present. Nor is he all-powerful. It is our God who is all-knowing, who is all-powerful, and who is all-present. Satan is under the control and authority of our Father. Furthermore, we have that just glorious truth, but we have this text given to us. That God has provided His children His own armor... To stand against the schemes of the devil. In our text, it's important to note that that Paul calls believers to put on the whole armor of God. And just once again, it's God's armor. Many, Many brothers and sisters in Christ seek to... I never know how Randy can do this so smoothly. In and out. It's a gift. 
So back to the whole armor of God. This is what the call is to put everything on. And many brothers and sisters in Christ will seek to, to grab our favorite piece of the armor, thinking it'll be enough. Like I talked about in the sword. Just give me the sword of the spirit. I'm going. But it's not enough. You will not be able to stand with just one piece of the armor. That's why it's told us multiple times to stand firm in the whole armor. So the evil one will attack from many angles. He's always looking for a weakness in our defense. But when we take up the full armor of God in his strength, through prayer, Christians can withstand the evil day. It says to withstand the evil day. And which is every day until Jesus returns to establish his righteous kingdom here on earth. This complete weaponry that we see Paul present um, really comes his, from his reflection of what he sees in Scripture about the divine messianic king of kings. I want you to hear this from the, from the Old Testament Scriptures of what is presented about our king of kings. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 5 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees or decide disputes by what he hears, his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with a rod of his mouth, and with the breath in his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. In Isaiah 59, verse 17, he says, He put on the righteousness as a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing, and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Isaiah 52, verse 7, talking about our King of Kings, says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. And in Psalm 18, it says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God and my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield. In the horn of my salvation, my strong horn of cold. And in verse 30, it says, This God, He is perfect. His ways are perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. In Isaiah 49, verse 2, about the servant of the Lord, it describes Him as having a mouth like a sharp sword. We see this description that we often, a lot of times it gets attributed to a Roman soldier. And I think it's the beauty of St. Paul being chained to a Roman soldier, seeing it with his own eyes, but then having the word of God, that the Holy Spirit illuminate who Jesus is through the Old Testament. 
And Jesus is our warrior. And this is his armor. So let's, let's, I know everybody's ready for it. Like, hey, let's get to the armor. Come on, let's talk about these individual pieces. Come on. All right, let's do it. In the Gospel of John, see, I thought I was going to Ephesians, but I did. About this belt of truth. In the Gospel of John, Jesus proclaims, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The truth that we fasten around us is the revealed person and work of Jesus Christ in the Scriptures. This truth expresses who God is and who we are as adopted sons and daughters of the King of Kings. When we hold firm to the truth that out of love, that out of love God has saved us and brought us near, we are able to recognize Satan's lies, which prevents us from being deceived by them. So next we have the breastplate of righteousness. And this is a righteousness of Christ has been imputed to sinners as a part of the great exchange that occurred on the cross. The enemy will continue to point out your sins and failures. That's what he will do. He will continue to point out your sins and failures. But in those moments, you should point to the breastplate of righteousness and proclaim that there is now no condemnation for you. Because you are in Christ. Thirdly, we have shoes for your feet. Which is the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Jesus is the good news. The one who restores our peace with the Father. So peace has been reestablished between God and His creation. For those who are believers. And, our, and believers are to herald this good news. So with, with our gospel kicks on. We should be ready. Thank you Tyson. We should be ready. To engage in the battle. So let me ask you a question. Do you have a willingness. To share the gospel. Better yet, do you have an eagerness to share the gospel? If not, I think there's some things to consider. One, for believers in here, just ask me, does the good news of Jesus Christ need to capture your heart once again? And look, there's, there's nothing shameful about asking God to stir your heart in this way. I mean, this is exactly what Paul prays for after, at the end of this discourse. He says, pray for me. Pray that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mysteries of the gospel. For which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So believe this morning. Don't let your, your prideful heart or the lies of the devil prevent you from asking your brother or sister 
to pray for you in this regard. If your heart is not stirred and has been dull about the beauty of the good news, where it's a natural overflow to desire to humbly share it with others, if that is not true of your heart this morning, ask a brother or sister to pray for you. Well, let's keep going through this list. I know it's a favorite thing for everybody. It's t- tell me all about it. I remember myself, I used to like, it was, I, I was wrapped up, do I have it memorized in the right order and things like that? Um, you're missing the point. See the full picture that Paul is, is giving here about being in Christ in his armor. So forth in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith that has been given to you given to you to extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 12, verse 2, it states that Jesus is our source and perfecter of our faith. Again, another quick quote from Sir Ian Dugan. He says, The proper understanding of this item, the shield of faith, is found in the object of faith, not in the strength or the weakness of one's faith. Throughout the Psalms, God is is identified as the shield. The Lord is my strength and my shield. You are a hiding place in my shield. God himself is our shield. He is our refuge. He is our hiding place in the day of difficulty. His faithfulness, hear this, his faithfulness will keep us safe when we are being shot at by the arrows. Flaming or otherwise. So next we are we are to take on the helmet of salvation. The Christian helmet is his or her sure hope of salvation. This is not a, a future hope, but it's a hope of the, of the past and of the present and the future. Scripture reveals God's grace has, has saved us and is currently saving us. And will continue to keep us secure in Christ until the work he started is completed. This assurance of salvation allows us to stand firm in the face of the accusations that evil one sends our way. And finally, everybody's favorite, and it, rightly so, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is a weapon for defending against and driving back the evil one. The, the, the Bible is not a weapon if it's just closed or you're just holding it in your hand. It must be held in your mind. And it must be held in your heart. The believer is called to, to prayerfully study the Word of God. Seeking to rightly handle the Word of Truth. For the reason of disarming Satan. It's what Jesus did in the wilderness before he started his public ministry. So church, now that we're we're fully dressed, we got all the battle gear on. This is what we should do. This is what we should do together. There's a... This, these verses, it can be very individualistic based on our reading and some of our background. If you look into it, it's a calling together. It's a calling to assemble together. So now that we are fully dressed, we are to stand side by side 
putting in the practices of the strength of each piece of the armor. Together, we must walk in truth as people of integrity. Together, we must live righteously, ever forsaking sin. Together, we are to proclaim the gospel, knowing that beautiful feet do just that. And with faith, we must trust the promises of God and live out our sure salvation. Living it out, allowing it to affect our thinking and affect our actions as we submit to the authority of God's word. To ultimately, Christians are to put put their trust in the God of the armor. And we saw scripture depicts Jesus as the ultimate warrior, fighting and winning the ultimate war for his people through his death and resurrection. Therefore, stand firm in the heat of battle, knowing that there is victory in Jesus. He is your strength. He is your advocate. And in his armor, you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And the book of James gives us this hope with confidence. He writes, Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And from this secure position, speak boldly about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Docs and Church, may we be ready to go and may we be prepared to stand for God's glory and for our joy. Amen? Amen. Amen. As, we, as we move our time of worship into a time of receiving communion, if you are a believer in Christ, this table is open to you. There'll be people up front to, to serve you. If you, would, if you would come forward and receive the broken body and the shed blood, the cosmic act that secured your victory over sin and death, the cosmic act that defeated our great enemy. If you would receive those and return to your, your seat, then I'll, I'll lead us through a time of Receiving the bread and juice together. Um, if, you, if you're not a believer, and I am so grateful that you are here with us this morning. But I respectfully ask you to just observe this family meal instead of partaking in it. As the band comes up, Dr. Church, hear these last few words from me. Jesus triumphed over the powers of darkness. This is about Jesus. He knows the ugly ugly reality of this world. He knows the struggles of the flesh. He knows the battles against the devil better than anybody else. In the midst of his real enemies, he trusted in his heavenly father. He trusted in his heavenly Father to bring light out of darkness. He trusted enough to willingly go to the cross, 
trusting that he would be raised in victory. On the cross, Christ slays the ancient serpent, and he wins our victory. By the resurrection, Christ, the warrior king, delivers the head-crushing blow to the serpent. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your armor. Lord, I pray that we would, we would put it on as we put on your righteousness. Lord, may we not trust in our own strength. Lord, may we come in our weakness to your table this morning. To receive your work. May we be reminded strength is found in you. Lord, that we can't stand on our own. Lord, pull us out of being indifferent to this life and to what's going on. Or to be trapped by fear. Lord, there's freedom and joy found in you. I pray you continue to, to have your way in this time together for your glory, for our joy.